Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf. He is the economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His website, democracyatwork.info. Uh, also, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf, as in Professor Wolf with two fs, or at democracy at wrk. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. It's great having you with us. Brexit is at the top of the headlines right now, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on there, where it came from, where it's going. Is the EU a neoliberal experiment or not? And also, I'm hearing, in fact, I heard it yesterday on, I believe it was France 24, that a lot of the people who are participating in the Yellow Vest movement are saying time to withdraw from the EU, that that sentiment is growing across France. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that whole constellation of stuff. Well, I think it's a remarkable development. I think the yellow jackets in France represent, I'll go out on a limb, a historic emergence of the mass of people back into active political engagement. It's absolutely extraordinary, I think, for anybody who takes democracy seriously. But take a step back. What all of this is, what you point to in the polls in France, the whole Brexit story, is a kind of delayed reaction of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Europeans to the crash of 2008. I'll overstate it, but I'll say roughly that you might think of what happened in Europe afterwards as having something like the famous deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car, frozen, even though the animal understands it has to get out of the way. The French people, the British people, thought that the economic downturn of 2008 would not last too long. They were wrong. They hoped they'd get through it without suffering. They were wrong. They hoped that like after the Great Depression of the 30s, the inequality of the society would be seen as a problem and would be reversed, and they were wrong. It took years to kind of 
beat out those hopeful expectations. And so then we get to a couple of years ago, and you begin to see the real massive shift of the European population. And they're trying to figure out what went wrong here. What is the problem? They were not prepared, although they are now. They were not prepared two or three years ago to be critical of capitalism as an economic system. They were looking for easier problems to solve, simpler problems to solve. And so some of them got drawn into really, in retrospect, crazy ideas, ideas you latch on to because you're afraid of dealing with the real problem and you hope that this easier-to-solve problem will get you out of the fix. So the British, for example, decided in large numbers that their problem was being part of Europe. Frankly, as an economist and everything else, that's crazy. And everything that has happened in Britain since that time shows how crazy this is. The country is ripped apart by those who want to leave and those who want to stay. The governing party of the Tories is literally in free fall of disintegration. The mass of British people's situation does not get better. It gets worse the uncertainty. It's just, it's a craziness. You saw the same kind of craziness in many European countries as you did here in the United States, where the upset about the crisis, the upset about the bailouts of the very big banks who brought us the crisis, and then using the money that the state borrowed to bail out the banks as the excuse for why we have a bad deficit and therefore we have to have austerity for the mass of people. It really is too much. And so Europeans decided again, this is crazy, that immigrants were their problem, just like we have here in the United States, that these people coming into this part of the world, usually desperate, usually refugees, usually hounded by war as well as economic limit, are somehow the problem, and if we stop the invasion, well, then our problems will be solved. It doesn't work, it has nothing to do with it, but you're seeing the kind of play before the play. It's the last gasp of folks who know there's a serious problem, who've avoided facing that it it lies right in the core of the economic system, and they're trying to find some other way out. Having said all of that, I think the French Yellow Jacket movement is, in fact, the antidote. It is a movement that is not focused on immigrants, is not focused on hardly any of the distractions. You're right. The notion that somehow being part of the EU, because that's something that changed over the last short period of time, is the root of their problem. But that'll dissipate pretty quick, because mostly what the uh, gilets jaunes, the yellow jackets, are about is demanding economic change to no longer suffer the declining job security, the loss of benefits, the reduced public services, the scarcity of good jobs, the very things that everybody is suffering for the last 10 years, that those are the issues. They have to be addressed directly. And if the political party system can't do it, well, then the people will go into the streets with their yellow jackets and make the changes happen. I really think we're at a very nodal point of change in modern history. I heard Andrew Sullivan yesterday speaking to this, basically speaking on behalf of Brexit, or at least rationalizing it, pointing out that 
and I haven't been able to validate these numbers, it seems like it might be hyperbolic, but that from the time that basically the UK joining the European Union erased the borders, right? And so anybody in the European Union, any citizen of any country in the EU could emigrate to England. And England was a very, very wealthy nation. And there's a lot of really, really poor nations in the EU, particularly as they you know, absorb things like, you know, Poland and Hungary and whatnot. And, right. and so you've got this Polish plumber, these ads that the right wing was using in, in the UK to point out that, in fact, wages have been driven down by immigration. And his point was that more people immigrated into the UK from the time the UK joined the EU to today than immigrated into the UK from the Norman invasion to the time of the forming of the EU, that it was that radical a change. There's something like a 30% increase in the population of Great Britain during this period of time. And the consequence of that was that it drove down wages substantially, and that's what people are reacting to. Is he wrong? No, he's got, as usual, he's got his finger on something that is real, but he's hyping the significance. Hmm. Uh, look, there are benefits when you bring in cheap labor. The fact of the matter is, every time you had a, a plumber coming from Poland, you had someone willing to work with high skills at a fraction of the price of a British laborer. This is a real problem for the British laborer, absolutely. But the initiative for it and the goals lying behind it are profit. You are squeezing the working class and you're making the rich, the employer class, richer. There's no question that that raises all kinds of problems. But the problem is a system that works this way rather than picking up on the detail that it's a, a Polish plumber rather than somebody else. In a different society, you would say either you can't come in, or if you're going to let these people come in, then you have to do something to guarantee the livelihoods of the people who were here before, as well as accommodating the influx of those who want to come. Every effort at union, including that here in the United States, brought together richer areas and poorer areas. And the poor tend to leave the areas they're in to go to the richer areas if they can, because it makes their lives better. We used to celebrate that the country, the United States, which for a long time was the major welcomer of poorer people willing to work for less money into the United States was a crucial part of building up our economic system. That's because we had work for them to do. That's because we provided jobs and housing and so on. If you didn't, then you would have had the backlash that you have in Europe. But the problem is not that we can't find work for people to do. Britain is an old country desperately in need of rebuilding its cities, its housing, not even to speak of a green new deal in order to deal with the ecological problems. There's more than enough work for the local people and for the immigrants. And remember, the immigration is usually temporary. After a while, and by the way, that has happened in Polish, in the case of Poland, very dramatically in the last five years, those people are Polish and in large numbers go back from England after they've earned some money to live in Poland because it's much cheaper and to be part of the society they grew up in. 
So I think if you understood this more in the historical context, you wouldn't make these alarmist kind of notions, oh my God, we have an invasion. It's really no more true of Britain and Polish plumbers than it is of America and Honduran coffee farmers. Yeah. So what is the solution? How do we solve it? Well, I think it's a very old idea. If you want to have a peaceful society, you've got to give people decent work at decent income. The British have failed to do that for their own people long before they joined the EU. This is an old problem in England and has roiled British politics for at least the last two centuries. There is nothing new here. If you want social peace, if you want to treat people in a way that will make them peaceful and good with each other, then don't give some of them a job at high income, other people no job at all, or a job with no security and no benefits. And if you're going to become part of the European Union, which the British chose to do, and you're going to accept people coming into your country because they're looking for work. And if you don't want that to produce a political cataclysm, then you have to make sure that they don't come in as competitors for insufficient jobs. You have to provide work for everybody. And everyone in the British elite knows that. But yeah. They chose to put profits ahead of that, and now they reap the whirlwind. And results. Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Prof Wolf on Twitter. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And democracy at work.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are Professor Wolf's websites. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Tom Hartman here with you. We are on the edge of a series of crises, right? We may well be on the edge of an economic crisis. Axios has just started a new economic newsletter, and they're saying, no, everything's good, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm not quite so sanguine. <laughs> I, I think that we have some serious structural problems, and we've got a massive corporate and individual debt problem. And the only reason that these are not taking the system down is that interest rates are artificially low. We'll see where that goes. So we've got that financial crisis. We've got a political crisis with a now unindicted co-conspirator criminal in the White House and apparently a criminal as vice president as well. Mike Pence uh, was uh, the head of the transition team, which was informed that Michael Flynn was an agent of a foreign government. In fact, two foreign governments, Turkey and Russia, and did nothing about it. 
And it wasn't until the Washington Post outed this that, that they finally did something. So Mike Pence was apparently complicit in the, this crime that, that Michael Flynn has now pled guilty to, or a number of these crimes. And so, you know, we've got a political crisis going on. But then there's this climate crisis. And the climate crisis could put all of them in the rearview mirror because the climate crisis is right now killing people. It is killing Americans, severe storms, flooding, drought, wildfires. Just, you know, one big fire in California killed 84 or 88 people. We're seeing people literally dying every month in the United States as a result of climate change. And it's not just here. I mean, we're not the worst hit part of the world. The places that are the worst hit are the places around the equator. Donald Trump, meanwhile, is gutting protections for 60% of our streams, wetlands, and waterways. Get ready to see more poison in your tap water. Seriously. This is the Obama-era water rule that was explicitly, specifically meant to protect our tap water, our drinking water. The EPA announced that the Obama administration's 2015 Waters of the U.S. rule would be redefined and no longer protect up to 60% of the nation's streams and wetlands. Bob Irvin, uh, the president of America Rivers, he says this is an early Christmas present to polluters and a lump of coal for everyone else. And, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of people have come out and said, oh, this is terrible. The impoverishment of America is something that I think is really quite extraordinary. Uh, and I wanted to share this story with you, and then we'll get back to your phone calls and, and our ongoing discussion in just a second. In the Axios newsletter, a fascinating story titled, Dollar Stores Thrive in Distressed Pockets of America. And it says, as rural America gets left behind by the rise of coastal superstar cities, uh, that one entity is heavily profiting from that blight. Now, just think about this for a minute. As Reaganomics is settling in deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more a consequential part of the landscape of America, as Reaganomics continues to devastate, absolutely devastate the middle class, we have more and more people sliding out of the middle class and into the poor class, into the, the lowest economic categories. And that's actually producing a boom. Now, it's killing off the stores that have traditionally catered to the middle class. It killed off Sears, it killed off Kmart, killing off Macy's, because the middle class isn't large enough any longer to support these kind of stores. But there is one unique type of store, and I'm not talking about liquor stores or McDonald's here. There is one type of store that is actually experiencing an explosion in growth. I mean, a major explosion in growth across the United States. And in fact, there are over 30,000 of these stores today in the United States, whereas just 10 years ago, there were only 18,000. And 40 years ago, 30 years ago, these stores were not even, nobody even heard of them. And they're called dollar stores. And increasingly, this is where many Americans in the bottom 50% of America, which is basically the poor, you know, the bottom 50% of America is, well, the bottom 80% of America is living paycheck to paycheck and can't withstand a $1,000 shock. The bottom 50% of America can't withstand a $400 shock. And not only is living paycheck to paycheck, but is badly in debt. And these dollar stores are now becoming the place where people are shopping, not just for things. You know, you don't just go there for light bulbs. People are going there for food. And the food that they're finding is 100% processed food. It's the stuff that'll last on a shelf for two or three years. And one of the things, one of our earlier geeky sciences that we did a while ago, in fact, right here's the story itself, 
Uh, eating junk food raises the risk of depression, says multi-country study. And, and then, you know, processed foods linked to breast cancer. That's from BBC, an article by Alex Therian. Dennis Campbell writing over at The Guardian, eating junk food raises the risk of depression. This is the only stuff that's available in the dollar stores. You know, it's the cheese whiz with crackers. It's the, it's the you know, cheap peanut butter. It's, if you're lucky, it's lots and lots of candies. And the consequence of this is that we're seeing an explosion of obesity and diabetes and cancer in these poor neighborhoods. There are more dollar stores now in the United States than Walgreens, which, by the way, has been supporting financially the Republican Party in Wisconsin and their power grab. Uh, if you have a local Walgreens, you might want to call them up and let them know what you think about that. Walgreens, CVS, Home Depot, Costco, Kroger, and Walmart combined. Combined. And Walmart combined. All of those stores combined. There are they are still fewer than the number of dollar stores in America. And uh, the big dollar chains, they're adding over 1,000 stores a year. And there's already 30,000 of them. I mean, how many, how many places where poverty is deep in America? And, and as we slide, and the stock prices are exploding. This, is, this has been one of the real stars in the stock market over the last 15, 20 years. A Dollar Tree in Alexandria, Virginia, saw that the shelves were stocked with cheese nips and fudge stripes, and sodas were the only items in the refrigerator. This is, you know, these are the stores where everything's a buck, and in some cases they have prices that are a little higher than that. But this is, this is what Reaganomics has brought us, and we're still living in Reaganomics. Bill Clinton campaigned against it on, with his new covenant speech and said he was going to reverse Reaganomics, but he didn't do that. You know, after he was elected, a couple of the real big shots, one of the big bankers and the head of the Fed sat him down, Greenspan sat him down and said, son, we know you campaigned on this new covenant speech and you know you're going to do a new deal, but you're not. You got to dance to the tune of the bankers here. And then I'm guessing something very similar happened to Barack Obama. Of course, he inherited a financial crisis and chose to go along with the Bush administration's way of getting out of it by bailing out the people at the top rather than the people at the bottom. And so we're still in Reaganomics. And we're still watching the rich get richer while the poor get poorer. And in fact, here's a, again from this Axios piece. This is the, in the 1960s, the bottom 90% of Americans held 33% of the wealth and the top 1% of Americans held 33% of the wealth. So the bottom 90% and the top 1% both held 1% of the wealth, or 33% of the wealth. The remaining third was held by the, by the top 8%, 9%. But today, the bottom 90%, instead of having a third of America's wealth, 33% only holds 20% 20, 20 of America's wealth. And the top 1%, instead of holding a third of our wealth, now has 40% of our wealth. And as the wealthy get wealthier, the wealthier the middle class erodes. And that's what we're seeing. And then we've got Republicans basically promoting this. Right? And when somebody comes in and wants to do something about it, like in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, the Republicans simply change the rules of the game. And they got this power in the first place by changing the rules of the election game by saying that there was this thing called voter fraud, which is non-existent. I mean, 20, 30 times a year, nationwide, out of billions of votes cast, will you find somebody who is, an, is a felon and didn't realize that they couldn't vote 
or has voted in a, in a district that they shouldn't have voted in or whatever, you know, has, Ill, quote, illegally voted. And maybe once a year you get somebody who's not a citizen voting. And typically it's some European who's been living here for years and years who votes Republican. And meanwhile, the way that, you know, what they're telling us to pay attention to, instead of the impoverishment of America, which is very real and is happening right in front of our eyes. Let's see here. Steve in Gilderland, New York. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to push back slightly on what you were saying, that dollar stores didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago. I remember and, and when I the first one true. came came to uh, Okemos, Michigan. I was working in the mall at the time. It was 1971. So, yeah, they've been around for a while. That was almost 50 years ago, I think. But 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 we also had, I think more commonly, they were five and dime stores. Oh, yeah, Woolworths. But see, the, the, yeah, the right. dollar store phenomena was everything in the store is a dollar. And, I you know, I haven't been in a dollar store in probably 20 years. But back when they first started, there was everything is a dollar. In the five and dime stores, they had things that were expensive as well as things that were five cents or ten cents. I wasn't old enough to actually shop in them, but I do remember going to them. Yeah, <laughs> with I, my, I, you with know, my parents. Yeah, I did when I was a little yeah. kid too. And I thought I thought Walmart also started as kind of a discount, like similar idea. Ma- Walmart was, was lowest lowest price guaranteed. But when Sam Walton was alive, I remember we were living in Georgia at the time that the first Walmart came to Atlanta. And we went out and visited it. And there was this big banner across the top of the store. This must have been in the late 70s, early 80s. Big banner across the top of the store that said 100% made in America. I remember that as well. Yeah, I remember that as well. Yeah. Boy, boy, how times change. But yeah, I think the five and dime stores is probably analogous to that. And it would be interesting to go back in history and see if the five and dime stores actually started during the Great Depression. I don't know the history of them. But if they were uh, I, I our think, grandparents' yeah. version of the dollar stores, I, I think I think they probably were. It, 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 and I grew up in you know not with a lot of wealth at all, and that's commonly where we would shop is, mm-hmm. is those kinds of places. So, um, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We used to go to to the Woolworths in Lansing, and there was one in Newego. I think it was Woolworths, and it literally had yeah. five and dime, uh, five slash ten on the on the front of the store on the logo on the sign and i remember yeah. that it was that we had a woolworths on main street in oneana new york mm-hmm. small town college town and uh, you know right in the center of town that was actually one of the main stores but i, I you know i remember very clearly like almost everything was either a nickel or 10 cents so <laughs> well you must be older than me because i you know i remember going to the five and dime stores no. in, in lansing in the 50s that's where my parents would go if i needed a new coat or a jacket or something if dad was doing well we would go there if he wasn't we'd go to the salvation army uh, you know a lot of my clothes the first five six years of my life came from salvation army and thrift stores but then we moved up to the five and time store so <laughs> uh, not, i know i'm not older than you but um maybe it's uh, maybe it's a regional thing it could be a regional thing, or different yeah, chains cause, cause we, bet we didn't have a lot of wealth in oneana yeah still don't but yeah a lot of upstate new york towns are very depressed yeah Um, they don't even have dollar stores you know you know it's amazing that we (laughs) yeah it's amazing that as a people we tolerate this you know i mean the the people of scandinavia said we're not going to have poverty here we're just going to end poverty we're going to do away with it by and large and why can't we we're the richest country in the world why can't we figure that out steve thanks a lot for calling yeah it is yeah good talking with you 
Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and Fritz in Palm Desert, California. Hey, Fritz, what's on your mind today? I'm a first-time caller. I've been listening since right after the election. I love your show. Thanks, Al. When I was a kid, I lived in Steubenville, Ohio, for two years. My dad got an administrative education job. Steubenville is across the river from Weirton, West Virginia, and a lot of steel mills and coal mine-type things were uh, active then. And the change in how we lived as a kid... Um, it would snow. The snow would be black. This was before the environmental protection stuff in the 70s coming mm-hmm. out. The snow would be black within an hour after it snowed. We had soot on our windowsills because of all of the things that were in the air. I had respiratory problems there for that two years. In those two years, I was eight and nine years old that I did not have previous to or after we moved. Mm. And so... A lot of the stuff that was protected in the 70s and beyond, I'm afraid it's going to go again. And just those subtle things, along with all the broader things you you spoke of, it's just it's so it's so frightening to me. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. I lived that. And the people that lived there didn't know what they didn't know, because most of them, that was their environment. So they didn't realize that others didn't have to, you know, wipe off their windowsills every night because there wasn't air conditioning. There was soot on the windows. It was just the way life was there. So it was interesting to be in that. The thing that concerns me right now is water. I mean, Trump says he's going to roll back the water rules and put 60 percent of the nation's waterways uh, which are also uh, our water supplies, you know, for many of us. I mean, there's parts of the country that uh, tap into aquifers, but, you know, here in here in Portland, I mean, we get our water out of the Columbia River and, and pretty oh, much it's, everybody it's along it does. Yeah, it's, it's frightening. And, and if people don't realize what they've got, like you said, they won't realize what they've lost. Eric in uh, Milwaukee. Hey, Eric, what's up? I just want to call him and put a little nugget about the, uh, the dollar store thing. In, in uh, North Carolina, there's an individual named Art Pope. Oh, he yeah. Own he, he's like the richest guy in the state. He and many, he, many discount retail stores. He, he runs dollar stores? Uh, yeah, it's called Roses is a big chain. He's got hundreds of stores, and they're all discount stores and kind of like a local Kmart-type variety. And he's got a few dollar stores as well. And he gives, you know, obviously millions to the Republicans and conservatives. He was, he was one of the leading proponents behind the Batson bill yeah. uh, in North Carolina. So he's kind of a local cult brother. Yeah, like just like the DeVos family in Michigan, the the Amway family, Betsy DeVos and Eric Prince, the you know they basically own the Republican political party in Michigan. Our Pope owns the the Republican party in in North Carolina to keep his customers below the poverty line. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Eric, thanks for the call and thanks for listening to fifteen ten a.m. Claro in Redway, California. Hey, Claro, what's up? Yeah, how you doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Good. Well, um, a while ago, you said something when you were uh, talking about the economy, um, about housing. It's going to be another spike and then crash in housing. And my daughter's getting ready to yes. to buy another house and after she lost money in that 2008 stuff. Yeah, this is the top of the market right now, Claro. And if I was thinking of buying a house... I would rent for a year and then buy a house because I think that we're in the 2006, 2007. Actually, I think, you know, the the crash really started in February of 2007, but it didn't become obvious to everybody until October, as I recall, or November. And I think that we're kind of in that February 2007 period. We've seen housing 
the growth of housing declined by almost 2% in the last quarter. Now, it's still growing. It's down to 5% instead of 7%, steadily annual increase in, in the price of housing. And it's one of the reasons why housing is such a good investment, because over time, it averages out to 4 or 5% a year, which is typically better than you can get in the market or anyplace else. Unless she's going to be buying that house for the next 20 years, if she's going to buy it and live in it for less than 10 years, you know, I'm not an investment advisor and I've made a lot of stupid investments in my life. So feel free to, you know, ignore this. But but I would say, broadly speaking, the consensus across economic advisors and whatnot in the United States right now is that this is the longest or second longest sustained recovery in the history of the United States. And uh, capital, the, the laws of capitalism haven't changed. Uh, you know, boom bust is built into capitalism. So there is a bust coming. And when the bust comes, that's the best time to buy a house. Now, for most people, when they're buying a house, they're also selling a house. So it pretty much doesn't matter when in the cycle they're buying and selling. Because if it's when prices are down, they're losing money on the house that they're selling, but they're buying another house cheap. And if the market is really, really high, they're making a lot of money on the house they're selling, but they're buying a house expensive. But it all kind of washes out. But if she's buying her first house, I'd wait. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it does. Um, but uh, And I really appreciate it. She's in a different station in life, and so she's planning on living in this house 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, well, then it pretty much doesn't matter what you pay for it. I mean, you know, you just okay. want, to, you want to know that its value will recover, you know, as we recover from this recession and go into the next, the next uh, expansion cycle. Thanks a lot for the call and good luck to your daughter. And, and again, I, I, I hope I'm, take me seriously. Don't take investment advice from me. I'm <laughs> as you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month. But odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners when you go to omahasteaks.com. Enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth-generation family-owned company with over 100 years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef, hand-cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar, and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. So are your friends figuring out that the Republican Party is a scam? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Dean in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Dean, you wanted to talk about tariffs? I do. Yes, Tom. First, you're my guru. been listening to you for many years. But over the years, I've heard you and Bernie both speak about the need for tariffs. And now that Trump has instituted them, it seems like everybody is not happy about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm just wondering why that is. What's happening? In simple form, it's because Trump is doing them stupidly. The idea of tariffs is you want to make foreign goods more expensive than domestically manufactured goods, right? That's the simple idea. Alexander Hamilton laid it out in 1791 to Congress. They enacted tariffs in 1793, and we had tariffs of 1793 right through into 
really the, the, the Reagan started cutting them radically and then Clinton cut them more. And, you know, now we pretty much don't have tariffs. And um, and what that did was it built our country. Tariffs provided 100 percent of the federal revenue from the founding of the republic until the Civil War. They produ- provided 50 percent of all federal revenue from the Civil War to World War One, and they provided 30 uh, percent of federal revenue from World War One to World War Two. So they were very consequential in the rise of the modern American industrial base. When the Chinese started using tariffs about 25 years ago, and they were using other things in addition to tariffs, protectionist things like Chinese content rules. Things have to be made in a particular way. The Europeans do this with cars, right? You know, the, the way that the mirror is attached has to be unique to Europe, functionally a tariff. And what it did was it built China. I mean, tariffs built China. And so Trump is right that we need tariffs. And this is traditionally, up until 1992, when Bill Clinton abandoned them, this was the position of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was always in favor of tariffs all the way back to when Thomas Jefferson founded it. And, uh, and the Republican Party at various times has been in favor of tariffs, too. Dwight Eisenhower oversaw average probably 25 to 30 percent tariffs on, you know, broadly speaking, against all goods. The problem is, essentially, when, when the government puts a tariff on something, if, if we put a, China put a 40 percent tariff on American cars, that was their way of saying to Chinese manufacturers, manufacture in China because you'll be able to sell your cars here in China for 40 percent less, which is what China did. The problem here in the United States is that because we've been without tariffs for about 20 years, broadly speaking. I mean, we still have over 20,000 tariff categories and our average tariffs are around 1%. So they're still there and they could be raised back up to 20 or 30%, which is our average for our first 200 years of history. The problem is that you're basically saying to to American car manufacturers, for example, don't manufacture overseas because when you ship that car back into the United States for sale, it's going to cost more. If you manufacture it here, it'll cost less. That which makes perfect sense. And so a company would say, okay, we'll invest a billion dollars in a new factory because we just got this you know, billion dollar tax break. The problem is that these tariffs that Trump is doing, he's using national security as the excuse for. Our national security laws allow the president to place tariffs on sensitive goods in order to discourage the sale of those goods or the, or the purchase of those goods, either one, you know, basically to block something that might be used by another country that's a hostile power. And he's using that law to impose these tariffs, which means that when he leaves office in two years, those laws, are, those tariffs are going to go away. Now, if you're General Motors, are you going to make a billion dollar bet by building a factory in the United States that the tariffs are going to stay when that's the case? I mean, tariffs have to be enacted by Congress, not by the president. Yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. So, Thank you. yeah, the, the net net of this is that, you know, tariffs are go- a good thing, but they need to be done systematically. They need to be done methodically. This whole experiment, this neoliberal experiment with global free trade has been a disaster for country after country. It's why France is melting down right now. It's why China is so powerful right now. It's, you know, basically the manufacturing and the jobs associated with the manufacturing in the United States and in parts of Europe have just gone to China. And it's because of the end of tariffs. Dean, thanks a lot for the call. This is killing America. The BBC in 2002 published a news story under the headline, More Suicides Under Conservative Rule. This is 18 September 2002. And I'm just reading from the story. This is a news story. This is not an op-ed. The suicide rate increases under conservative governments, research suggests. The Australian team analyzed suicides between 1901 
which is when the Australian federal government was created, in 1998. They took into account periods of drought in World War II. After adjusting for these factors, the figures clearly showed the highest rates of suicide occurred when both conservative state and federal governments were in power. Conversely, the lowest rates of suicide occurred when state and federal governments were both labor, liberal. Middle-aged and older people were most at risk. When the conservatives ruled both state and federal governments, men were 17% more likely to commit suicide than when labor was in power. Women were 40% more likely to kill themselves. And then they wrap it up by saying, overall, the researchers say the figures suggest that 35,000 people would not have died had the conservatives never been in power. Which is pretty, pretty breathtaking, right? And then I was pointing out all this corruption that we have uh, in the United States, now Seth Frotman has just left the CFPB to start his own student borrower protection center because the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which is supposed to protect you if you have a student loan, under Mick Mulvaney, this corrupt Trump puppet, they are just killing off these protections. And this is a one and a half trillion dollar business. And you've got student loans are defaulting right now at the rate of one every 28 seconds. Student loan debt is growing faster than auto loans. It's growing faster than home mortgages. It's growing faster than credit card balances. And what is this doing? Not just the student loan, but the student loan, the increased cost of living, the increased costs of medication, all these other things. It's causing Americans to die. Life expectancy in the United States declined from 2016 to 2017. And the leading cause of this was suicide. The drug overdoses were up there too, but suicide rate increased just in one year, 2016 to 2017, increased 3.7% nationwide. And what we're seeing, in my opinion, is uh, Reaganomics setting in and it's killing us. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, no, I wanted to uh, take it back on the conversation we were having earlier. Um, I was watching a, uh, a, a really interesting documentary over the weekend. It was pretty much all about the rise and fall of Dayton, Ohio, and pretty much how Reaganomics pretty much wiped out that, uh, that whole city. But one of the things they talked about was when a GM plant closed. A few years later, a Chinese glass company called Fuyao um, Glass Industry bought the place. And um, Chow Tech Wong, I guess, is the CEO. He was like a self-made billionaire. But they actually had a sit-down conversation with this guy. And they were asking him, you know, hey, well, you guys are, you know, you're starting pay. You know, you're starting these guys off at $12 an hour. And then after 90 days, you know, the base pay goes up to twelve eighty-four. And he said, you know, well, American workers need to get used to just lower pay um, than they did, like, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what this guy said was, you know, when you say those low wages, it all depends on who you compare it with, like, you know, Wall Street or workers in Mexico, China or Japan. You know, right. American workers earn double what Japanese workers make and six times as much as what Chinese workers make and three times as much as Mexican salaries. You know, former GM workers are very grateful to us because they lost their jobs after the plant closed, and now we're happy that they offered them that they're working with us now. And uh, Yeah, 12 bucks um, an hour is better than nothing. Sure. <laughs> right. Well, they were talking with one of the other GM workers um, who used to be making like $30, $40 an hour, um, and when they reopened the plant, you know, he applied for the job, got the job, and was working in the exact same part, you know, of the factory, making like $12 an hour. And you know, the whole rest of the documentary just kind of went into some of the blight that the whole 
place was experiencing, you know, since. Uh, right. And that's a really important point, Marty, because it's as I, you know, as we did virtually the entire first hour of the show about demand is what drives economies and demand is produced principally by one thing, and that's wages. And so if you decrease wages in a town by 75 percent, which is apparently what happened in, in uh, what was it, Youngstown, you were saying? The plant was, uh, it was just outside of Moraine, Ohio. Yeah, Moraine, Ohio. So if you, if, you declare, if you decrease the wages that are flowing into that town or into a significant portion of the economic activity in that town by 75%, you're going to see a decrease of 75% in the money being spent. Three quarters less restaurants are going to be patronized, stores, toy stores are going to be visited, magazine stands, everything. You know, people are just going to buy less of everything because they don't have the money. And that is going to have an echo effect. And then those people who run those local restaurants and the local bookstore and the local, you know, fill in the blank clothing store and whatnot, they won't have enough money and they're going to start cutting the wages of their employees or cutting the hours or uh, eventually going out of business. And then you have blight. And that's what is happening. This is the absolute direct result of so-called free trade and Reaganomics, which are basically the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And then also you have opioid crisis, too, to add to add you know, yeah. fuel to that. Area. By the way, Marty, this was the one good thing that Donald Trump did. And I, I you know, as much as I dislike Donald Trump, I, I'm a big believer in giving credit where credit is due. Although you could argue that this should have been done two years ago or even before that. But it turns out that the fentanyl that is, it's, it's, it's by and large, it's not Oxycontin that's killing people. It's, it's fentanyl. And mm-hmm. what, what is happening is people got addicted to opiates with the Oxycontin and with the Tylenol-3 and all this kind of stuff, easy prescribing, particularly the Oxycontin. They got addicted to this stuff. And then the doctors cut them off. And so now they're going to street dealers and they're buying heroin because heroin's you know, a very effective opiate. It's stronger than morphine. It's stronger than Oxycontin. And they're buying heroin, but it's being cut with fentanyl, which is 100 times stronger than heroin. And it's the fentanyl that's killing people because it's so powerful that a couple of grains of fentanyl is the difference between getting high and dying. Most of this fentanyl is actually coming from China. And I didn't know that China doesn't consider fentanyl a regulated substance, a controlled substance. So they're not stopping people from dropping it in the mail to the United States. On the dark web, you can literally go online and you can buy an ounce of pure fentanyl. You know, what here in the United States would sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars when broken down, cut up and mixed with heroin. You can buy like an ounce of this stuff for a couple thousand dollars online and they just mail it to you. And it's perfectly legal in China to do this. And so one of the things Xi told Trump he would do if Trump would hold off on the tariffs for 90 days is he would turn fentanyl into a controlled substance in China so they can stop the export of it. Because that's actually what's killing Americans. It's not the opiate crisis, in quotes, itself. It's the presence of fentanyl. When Great Britain legalized heroin, the number of people dying from heroin overdose radically dropped because people were able to get clean heroin from their doctors. And heroin addiction over time went down as well. So anyhow, Marty, thanks for bringing that up. That's fascinating. That documentary sounds great. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him of burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that can last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. 
Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor holiday package deliveries. Save up to a whopping 40% off all outdoor XT and add-on cameras through December 22nd while supplies last. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dave in St. Labrie, Nebraska. Am I saying it right, Dave? Yes, that's right. That's right, Tom. What's up, Dave? You're a pleasure to listen to every day. And I'm sitting back. I'm retired on a Bricklayer's International pension and a local pension. And uh, I went through that whole fruition of the Reagan era. Well, even when I graduated from high school in 1966, I moved to California from Nebraska. Mm. And it was a good experience. And even back then, I, I started out as an apprentice, a machinist, and it was non-union. And uh, even then, after 30, 60 days, I received in my insurance benefits and my eyeglasses. And, uh, right, because they had, even, if, even, even though it wasn't a union shop, they had to compete with union shops. That was a third of America, so that the unions set the, the wage floors. I know, and, and I just can't figure out today why the U-word is not being used that much anymore. I just don't I agree. understand that. It's like... <laughs> well, it, it, it's used a lot by working people. It's used a lot by Democrats. You'll hear Bernie Sanders go on and on about it, you know, forever and, and progressives in general. But it's not used in the media. One of the big, big three networks right now is fighting to destroy their own union, you know, the union that operates within their space. So... But another thing, you know, sitting out here in the middle of uh, Red County, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm... Uh, you know, people just don't understand. They just want to do everything on their own own way. And and uh, I think that what bothers me, they just don't understand that if everybody gets in, if there's some solidarity, even on insurance. I mean, that affordable care insurance, what an advantage. And it would have worked perfectly if everybody would have gotten in on that. You know, yeah. the more you get in, the less it's going to cost you. That's right. Yeah. Economies and of scale. I absolutely. And uh that's just like the unions. When I joined the union, I'm, I'm understanding, uh, you know, the reason they could take care of us. And, I mean, I wouldn't be able to retire now if I didn't have my, my pension, you know. And yep. to have that opportunity, and it's just and and sadly, it's, it's Dave, you're, everybody responsible. Yeah, and sadly, Dave, if you have kids or grandchildren, odds are that they will never have that experience. They will not be able to retire with a union pension, you know, unless they happen to have, be one of the lucky few who have a government job in a blue state, <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're out of luck. I actually got a son that's a lineman, and he's in a union, so. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. He understands the value because he lived with it, you know. Yeah. He yeah. lived with it growing up. And, uh, well, and that's the thing. I mean, I'm, my generation, you know, it was, it was my dad's generation, really. I mean, you know, he, he, he came of age in the, yeah. in the 40s and, 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 you know, worked until, I don't know when it was, but, you know, worked for 40 years in a tool and die shop. And that generation saw this extraordinary growth of the middle class. So the middle class was actually growing faster than the top 5%. And, and then the reason why was because of unions and in large part. It was also because we had a top tax rate that was above 50%. You can look at any country in the world, and when the top tax rate's above 50%, inequality is decreased and equality increases. When it's, a, when it's below 50%, in any country in the world, inequality will get worse and worse and worse over time until it finally breaks the back of the economy, which I think we're very, very close to right now. Dave, thanks for the call and for the great story. 
Our book today for the uh, Tower Harbor Book Club is The Next Generation City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Sized Metros by Mick Cornett. Uh, we're reading from the foreword by Richard Florida. A funny thing happened in the early years of the millennium. A rising global economy alongside powerful new technologies that connected corners of the globe in an instant would make it possible for us to live and work virtually anywhere we wanted. It seemed all but certain that the forces that were connecting our world would flatten it too and continue to push people apart. Well, those forces did the opposite. They drove us closer together, not farther apart. They brought us back to cities and to urban life. The 20th century was the century of suburbanization, the flight from cities of people in industry, commerce, and jobs as far from downtowns as our cars and highways could take us. The American dream was then a vision of a big house and a car followed by a bigger house, two cars, and more. A big plot of land you could call your own. It was life on America's next great frontier, what the urban historian Kenneth Jackson called the crabgrass frontier. As a young boy growing up in New Jersey, I watched my hometown of Newark decline. I saw the city erupt into riots. I saw the factory where my father worked shutter. I saw the newspaper where my mom worked, the Star Ledger, ringed with barbed wire fences. Between 1950 and 1980, Boston lost almost 30% of its population. After the Boeing bust, Seattle's unemployment reached as high as 25%. In 1975, New York City, while still arguably the world's most powerful global center of business and corporate finance, nearly declared bankruptcy. One of my professors at Rutgers wrote an article provocatively titled, the city as sandbox, which argued that American cities had become hollowed out shells, having lost their core economic functions to the suburbs. But now, shockingly, the 21st century has been deemed the century of the city. Young people, professionals, and a growing predominance of scientists, techies, knowledge workers, and artists, designers, and media types, a group I call the creative class, have streamed back to cities in ways no one anticipated. Major companies are heading back to cities in droves. Even startup companies are abandoning their tech-driven nerdistans and suburban office parks for the vibrancy and hubbub of urban centers. So far, it's fairly clear that large cities and metropolitan areas have benefited disproportionately from this urban shift. The first two decades of this urban revival have been marked by winner-take-all urbanism, where in a relatively small number of superstar cities like New York and London and knowledge centers like San Francisco, Boston, and Seattle, have attracted the largest concentration of talent, ideas, investments, and economic activity. However, the reality is that the new urban knowledge economy is not determined by size alone. In fact, population size and population growth are actually poor predictors of innovation and economic growth. And as our largest urban centers have become increasingly expensive, unaffordable, and divided, they price out and drive away the very diversity that powered innovativeness and growth to begin with. As the late great urbanist Jane Jacobs once told me, when a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. It's a big mistake to write off small places. College towns in particular have boomed as have a host of smaller and mid-sized cities, even rural areas. Size may be an advantage, but it's not the sole determinant of success. Smaller places that cultivate innovation and creativity have abundant natural or urban amenities and connect to larger centers in the United States and the world are thriving. The reality of our time is that the world is spiky, not flat. While technology may have flattened access to ideas and information, the reality of our time is that access to opportunity has become increasingly spiky in this urban century. And this spikiness occurs across all scales. Some large places, the ones we all know and talk about, are doing fine, but others are struggling. 
And the same goes for small and medium-sized cities in rural areas. Some thrive, some coast along, and many others decline. After years of study, I've concluded that the key thing that distinguishes the thriving places of any and all size is surprisingly simple. Successful places are intentional. They undertake efforts to leverage and build upon their own unique assets. They mobilize their anchor institutions, their own civic organizations, and their people. They build true public-private partnerships. And large or small, they create a genuine quality of place that all can see and feel. As I travel to cities like Milwaukee and Des Moines and Boise and Oklahoma City, my former hometown of Pittsburgh, my wife's hometown of Detroit, and countless others across America, I see the incredible progress many so-called flyover places have made. And now I watch as even smaller communities like Bentonville or El Dorado, Arkansas, the latter chronicled in these very pages, do much the same to leverage their own knowledge assets or lakefronts and hillsides or arts communities to create their own renaissance. It can be done. It is being done. It does, however, take money and smart policy and great local leaders. But above all, it takes intentional leadership to mobilize the energy of the community to do it. In the decade or so since writing The Rise of the Creative Class, I watched Mick Cornett mobilize his community in just that way during his four terms as mayor of Oklahoma City. If you've heard of him at all, it's likely from the time he famously energized his community by putting the entire town on a diet to encourage fitness and vitality, long before wellness became a watchword for the new urbanization. His accomplishments go far beyond that single story, however. Cornett was the longest serving in a long line of fiscally conservative Oklahoma City mayors that have understood the importance of a city investing in this new urban talent-driven age. And he goes on to talk about that, the next American city. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Um, some comments from uh, our chat room over on YouTube, Tom Hartman program. Will the Dems take back the hundreds of millions of acres of protected land that the GOP stole from us and gave away to their corporate cronies and the corporations for extraction? Um, you know, it could be reversed. If, if Once a Democrat is in office, um, the, you know, what Killer Sheep is pointing out is, and correctly, is that Ryan Zinke and the Interior Department under him have, uh, you know, it's not just Bears Ears, it's, uh, which was done by Congress, actually, uh, by Republicans in Congress, but it's, it's also a lot of protected wildlife reserves and, and a lot of federal land that is still being held as federal land. They're just now saying, hey, you know, oil companies, come on in. You can drill in the Arctic. You can drill in the grouse, you know, habitat. You can drill, you can drill in anywhere you want. Anyway. Uh, Machiavelli uh, says, my question is, why are Democrats constantly willing to embrace Mitt Romney plan is worthwhile? I'm not sure what that's what uh, that is talking about. Uh, if it's talking about um, uh, Mitt Romney's suggestion that we should put employers in jail who hire people who are here without documentation. Uh, that's just how the law worked in the United States from the 1920s right up until the 1980s. And then in 86, Reagan changed that. Um, so WKUC Radio 2 says, uh, too bad Cohen isn't black. He would have gotten life without parole. Yeah, amen. Um, uh, which brings up another issue, which I wanted to riff on a little bit here. And that is um, Centoya Brown. Centoya Brown is a young black woman who, on August 6, 2004, 16-year-old Centoya Brown shot and killed Johnny Allen, a 43-year-old Nashville resident who had picked her up for sex. It was an act of self-defense. 
she explained to the police. But they prosecuted her for robbery as an adult, a 16-year-old who is being exploited sexually. And so now there's a rather substantial effort to, to bail her out on this. She is not the, the first one, by the way, or the only one. Ruby McCollum in August of 1952 was arrested and tried for killing her rapist. Not famously not allowed to testify at her trial, despite that he held her captive. C.C. McDonald, a black trans woman who was attacked by white supremacists, defended herself, resulting in the death of her attacker, was locked in a men's prison. Corey Gaines had a parking violation, was shot in her home while holding her son. She had numerous encounters. Her Baltimore police would abuse her. And Marissa Alexander, who spent years in prison after shooting a gun in the air to protect her child from an abusive man in the state where George Zimmerman got away with the murder of Trayvon Martin. She was not able to use the stand your ground defense despite only having fired warning shots. So anyhow, Bill, Governor Bill Halsam, his number is 615-741-2001, is the guy making the decisions about Centoya Brown. You might want to contact the governor's office in Tennessee. Well, let's check in with Talk Media News. Luke Vargas on the line with us, the senior foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. Luke Vargas is with us. Several developments in recent days suggest the U.S.-China trade war is heating up. Tell me about this. We've got the situation where the U.S. sort of ordered the the Canadian government to arrest this woman named Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei, the big uh, Chinese telecom, uh, earlier this month. And we've now seen China over the course of this week arrest two Canadian nationals in China, accusing them of, you know, engaging Whoa. in national security sort of. So they're going to do um, a prisoner swap. Right. And I don't think President Trump has helped here. He's been tweeting out the past few days, hey, you know, maybe we'll drop this extradition request for this woman to get sent to the United States if we can resolve the trade war. And it seems like China said, well, if you're going to take prisoners or, or talk about the rule of law as something that can be kind of manipulated. Uh, in well, he's also dumping games. on Canada. Grab some people, too. <laughs> yeah, he's dumping on Canada. He's saying, you know, we're not going to support our ally and border you know, country that we share a border with. We saw the Canadian foreign minister just several minutes ago at a joint press conference with Mike Pompeo and Jim Mattis down at the State Department trying to signal some unity between the allies here. But I don't know if we're defending Canada quite as much as we we need to be. Remarkable. Luke Vargas, chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. You can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Luke, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's a consequential time in the history of the United States, in the history of the world. I mean, everything from climate change, which is the history of the world, to, uh, you know, uh, is Donald Trump going to go to jail? And are we going to reform our, uh, you know, our systems that have been so corrupted by Republicans on the Supreme Court and in Congress? It's big stuff, big stuff. And you need to play a role in it because democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.